An Undeceptions podcast. Hi, if you're a regular listener to Undeceptions, you'll definitely know by now that I released a new book in 2021 called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. We're going to be back with season six in late February, but until then, I thought you might like this series of short readings from Bullies and Saints. It's kind of a cheat sheet for the book for those who don't want to read the whole thing, and I can respect that. And while you're in a podcast mood, why not take some time to look through our back catalogue of episodes? There are now over 60 episodes for you to get your teeth into over January. So take a look at some of the ones you might have missed. I hope you enjoy. Bullies and Saints. An honest look at the good and evil of Christian history with John Dixon. Robert Fleerman puts it starkly, Saxon religious conformity was secured through a chilling maxim, baptism or death. Hi, I'm John Dixon and welcome to this super series on my new book, Bullies and Saints. Bullies and Saints looks at the beautiful melody Jesus of Nazareth gave to his followers to sing. And I try and honestly assess how well they carried the tune over the last 2000 years. Each episode, I'll give you a free excerpt from the Bullies and Saints audiobook. And in this edition, we investigate the accusation that Christianity is a faith that was propagated by the sword rather than peace. Are Christians guilty of their own jihad? The answer is maybe. I will never forget the Friday evening I made a fool of myself defending Christianity to an acquaintance in a noisy pub in Sydney. My interlocutor was a self-made Balmoral businessman. Google Balmoral Beach, Sydney, and you'll have an idea of what I mean. He asked what I did for a living. I explained that I think, write and speak about historic Christianity. This usually either kills or ignites conversation. He responded by listing all the things that were wrong with the faith. Science had discredited belief in God, Christians were mostly hypocrites, and so on. I was happy to engage in friendly to and fro for a few minutes. Then he offered his climactic critique. Christianity had only spread throughout the world in those first few centuries by force. I asked him if he was remembering his religions correctly, and he assured me he was. Lots of books have been written about this, he said, in an expression that caught my interest. The church converted nations with a sword. Apparently, it was baptism or death. That is how the early church grew. Something went off in my head, and I'm not proud of it. I laughed at his claim. I raised my voice. I reminded him that I had a couple of degrees in this stuff. I quoted authors he'd never heard of. And as the words were leaving my mouth, I could almost hear the whispers of the New Testament in my ear. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. 
I was neither gentle nor reverent. The look on his face said it all. He excused himself and walked off to find a more pleasant conversation. Fair enough. I'm embarrassed about that evening for two reasons. Obviously, I was being a jerk, and I no doubt added to this skeptic's data set of haughty Christians. But there is a second awkwardness. His time period might have been out by several centuries, but he was not entirely wrong. There is no hint of coerced conversions in the first few centuries of Christianity. In that period, there is clear evidence that church leaders preferred to be good losers than bad winners, as we saw in chapter 5. But behind my friend's exaggeration was a half-truth from several scattered periods of church history. The myth of forced conversions to Christianity is like most myths. There is some truth to it. Something changed in Northern Europe in the late 8th and early 9th centuries under Charlemagne, 742 to 814. Already during the Merovingian kingdom under Clovis and his successors, it was normal for missionaries to follow after military conquests, establishing monasteries and churches in the new lands from which they could launch preaching and charitable missions among pagans. The Carolingian kingdom under Charlemagne inherited this general policy with a couple of major differences. Charlemagne, whose court was at Aachen in West Germany, was an even more ardent supporter of the church than the Merovingians had been. For his efforts, the Pope would crown him the first Holy Roman Emperor. The concept was straightforward. Charlemagne was chosen by God to revive the glories of the Roman Empire in the West and to defend and promote the cause of the church, hence holy. To be clear, the Vatican in no way directed Charlemagne. No one directed Charlemagne. But it did provide him with the social legitimacy he craved. Even more than Constantine 450 years earlier, Charlemagne really seems to have had a sincere sense of divine calling. Yet, as we've seen, devotion to Jesus Christ is no guarantee of following his melody lines. Charlemagne felt that it was his duty to bring salvation wherever God gave him dominion. He was a typical European warrior king with a heartfelt desire to channel that skill for the glory of God as he saw it. He instituted wide-ranging law reform in favour of Christianity. The Admonitio Generalis, or General Admonition, was a raft of legislative measures articulating the king's responsibility for the people of God, observes Rosamond McKitterick, professor of medieval history at Cambridge, and the need for everyone in the kingdom, and especially the secular and ecclesiastical elites, to work towards creating order and a polity worthy of salvation. His method was similar to that of Clovis, supporting the building of monasteries and churches throughout his realm. But there was more. Among the Saxons, Charlemagne adopted what has been described as a Christian jihad. The Saxons were a Germanic warrior people in what is now northwestern Germany. Charlemagne waged a brutal 30-year campaign against them from 772 to 804. He wanted to incorporate them into his growing Frankish empire, which would eventually encompass much of Europe. 
The task proved very difficult, as the Romans had earlier found with these northerners. Charlemagne's seeming successes among them were quickly reversed in Saxon rebellions. The sheer quantity of 8th century weapons, shields and chainmail found by archaeologists in this region offers grim testimony to the scale of the conflict. Charlemagne responded to these setbacks with brutality. In 782, for example, he ordered the beheading of more than 4,500 Saxons on a single day. Later in the war, after further agreements followed by rebellions, Charlemagne removed 10,000 men who'd been living with their wives and children, says his courtier and biographer Einhard. He dispersed them here and there throughout Gaul and Germany in various small groups deporting large numbers of fighting men with their families to distant parts of the realm was a shrewd tactic, and it eventually worked. By 804, after nearly 30 years of fighting, the Saxons were subdued. They were also converted. Einhard records, Thus, that war which had lasted for so many years ended on the terms laid down by the king and accepted by the Saxons, namely that they would reject the worship of demons, abandon their ancestral pagan rites, take up the Christian faith and the sacraments of religion, and unite with the Franks in order to form a single people. Sometime before the full subjugation of the Saxons, Charlemagne had published a notorious set of laws titled the Capitolatio de Partibus Saxoniae, or Ordinances for the Region of Saxony. Among the special rules for the unruly Saxons was this one. If any one of the race of the Saxons hereafter concealed among them shall have wished to hide himself unbaptized, and shall have scorned to come to baptism, and shall have wished to remain a pagan, let him be punished by death. There's debate among specialists about whether these laws were intended to bring about conversion or were a means of punishing regions that had formerly promised or pretended to submit to Charlemagne's religion and rule. Either way, it is the kind of coercive Christianity that my friend in the pub rightly despised. Robert Fleerman of the University of Utrecht puts it starkly. Saxon religious conformity was secured through a chilling maxim, baptism or death. Adding insult to injury, Charlemagne immediately imposed on every Saxon household tithes, that is, religious taxes. This created a double blow, cultural destruction and a financial yoke. This indeed has all the hallmarks of a Christian jihad, says Yitzhak Hen of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, whose stimulating article on this topic is titled Charlemagne's Jihad. Charlemagne's policies among the Saxons were undeniably awful. They are evidence of a deadly experiment in missionary expansion in the late 700s. I admit I've found myself shaking my head as I read these paragraphs. Yet the forced conversion of the Saxons does not quite establish the point my sceptical friend wanted to make. Charlemagne's approach is a notorious outlier 
in the Christian tradition. As Yitzhak Hen himself observes, Charlemagne's decree for Saxony has no precedent in the history of the Christian mission. Even leaving aside the high ideals of Jesus, the New Testament, and the couple of centuries that followed, there is also the Edict of Milan in 313, which declared the freedom and full liberty to exercise free choice in worshipping as each one has seen fit. A century later, the most influential Western Christian thinker for a millennium, St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, laid down the principle that, quote, no one is to be compelled to embrace the faith against his will. He believed in a theory of just war, as we saw, but converting pagans was not one of its principles. The same policy was followed by the Pope himself in the 6th century mission to England. Pope Gregory I, AD 540-604, wrote to an abbot named Melitus, who was on his way to assist Augustine of Canterbury in the establishment of Christianity in the British Isles. In the letter, the Pope expresses his longing to see the country converted to Christ, but he insists that the pagan temples themselves should not be damaged. The idols may be removed, but the buildings should not be destroyed. He gives the reason, so that pagans would not be resentful, and so that they might be more open to receiving the true worship of God. He also recommends that pagans be allowed to continue their ancient ritual of sacrificing large numbers of oxen to their gods, except that they should now be urged to do so to the refreshing of themselves, to the praise of God, and render thanks to the giver of all things for their abundance. Thanks for listening to this excerpt from my new book, Bullies and Saints. Click over to Amazon.com where you can pick up a copy of the full audiobook or a print copy if you like the feel of paper in your hand, like I do. And if you've enjoyed the content, let me encourage you to go to the Undeceptions website where you'll find much more like it, including my Undeceptions podcast. That's Undeceptions.com. See ya. Exceptions Podcast.